I'll uh, open with a word of prayer, and then uh, I'll have a little special thing here at the beginning uh, tonight in our lesson. Father, we thank you once again for the gift of Scripture, for the gift of the Holy Spirit, the author of the Scripture and the interpreter of the Scripture. We pray tonight that we would be quiet in our hearts to probe with him the content of Scripture and how it illuminates the darkness of our world. We want to walk as those who are in the light, not those who are in the darkness. And so, Father, teach us to be alert and to see what goes on and to know the truth, to follow you as our authority, as our Savior, and as the family of God. For we ask this in Christ's name. Amen. We have introduced over the course of these weeks a lot of different topics that flow out of the content of Scripture. And the reason this, this class or course, if you will, is tailored the way it is and structured the way it is is because I really am concerned that we all as Christians understand where we are at in our culture. Um, it's very hard to, see, uh, to deal with an opponent that hits you from the darkness and not know where it's coming from. Now, in our midst over the last week since we had the course, we have an English teacher in our class here. And um, I've asked her to come up here, uh, Cindy Baxter, to share with us uh, tonight some insights from her perspective as a public school teacher in the classroom. She's uh, one who has worked with the issue of literature. And as I said, when we first started this course, language is key. God spoke the universe into existence with language. And wherever Satan can, he always tries to confuse it. He always tries to use words wrongly. Um, and basically, he's a liar. And liars are people who misuse language. Language is also the vehicle for uh, ideas. And I, I think uh, Cindy will share with us tonight enough so that at least those of us who have children in the schools, and, and frankly, all of, all of you should be, should be alert to these issues because basically what's going on here is an agenda. And it's a pretty potent agenda. So I've asked Cindy to just come at this point as we've gone on um, and share some things that she's prepared. You don't have to take notes, obviously. It's just the teacher and me that made me put everything onto transparencies because that's the way I teach. Um, I've just been really amazed since I started taking this class at the number of things that Mr. Clough has said that fit right into everything that I learned in my um, college studies and in my graduate studies especially. I um, have my master's in English and one of the things that we did was extensive literary criticism and some of the things like deconstructionism that Mr. Clough has mentioned are just really pervasive ideas in the world of literary studies. And what happens in the universities um, eventually trickles down into the high schools and even in, to some extent to the middle schools. I'm a middle school teacher, but um, obviously I'm aware of what's going on across the board. And what I just wanted to share with you tonight was um, how American literary studies are completely fraught with paganism and humanism and a lot of the different things that we've been talking about or that Mr. Klaus has been talking about in this class. And obviously, you know, you're sitting there and probably thinking, oh, I went through high school, I don't remember American lit classes containing paganism and humanism. But in fact, if you look at the works of many of the dominant American writers that we study, you'll find um, this to be true. And the reason 
is that literature across the board is heavily influenced by world philosophies and sociology. And, you know, at first go, we don't think that because we tend to think of literary studies as being character analyses and looking at the conflict and the plot in the novel, but really that's just the basics. And when you get to the heart of the matter of literary studies, you're really looking at the worldview that's contained in a piece of literature. And this is um, exactly what you do in higher-level literature classes. So we're not talking about you know, basic English. We're talking about the classes where you're dealing with our, intelligent, our most intelligent children, the most um, gifted children. And what, what you'll find is that literary critics, those who look back on works of literature, um, analyze texts in light of various worldviews. For instance, um, Marxist critics um, are just totally steeped in social. Um, excuse me. In um, what am I trying to say? Well, just in sociological theory. And what they do is they look at everything in terms of social constructs and the economic basis of of everything. Just looking for Marxist theory all over the place. Um, Feminist criticism is really on the rise recently, and what feminist critics do is examines the treatment of women in various works of literature, looks at how they're uh, subjected and, um, you know, what kinds of roles women are allowed to play in literature, and obviously the end product is to see that women are downtrodden and, you know, totally put on uh, by men and that the patriarchy is the ruling dominant society and how horrible that is. Um, and we see the obvious signs of that all over the place. Uh, one of the, well I say more recent actually, but this started in about the late 60s, early 70s. Deconstructionism began with a Frenchman and the deconstructionists are very interesting and I know that Mr. Clough mentioned um, their ideas a number of times. What they do is they attempt to show how all language basically has no inherent true meaning. It only has meaning that we give it. And that, because of that, any text will deconstruct itself. It will fall in upon itself because the meaning of it is relative as to who's doing the interpretation. So. You know, what, what this leads to, I, I was trying to use sort of a, a logic uh, analogy here, and I came up with a little therefore. What, what happens is just at the heart of paganism, man creates his own order and meaning in the literature that he produces. It's really very ironic if you think about it, because we tend to look at literature as great works of art and you know, and oh well, we're just learning more about ourselves, but really all we're doing is, is trying to uh, validate ourselves, or I shouldn't say ourselves because I don't know that we are, but they are trying to validate themselves and give themselves certain meaning. Well, that's just the root of paganism and humanism. Um, it's not just the critics that do it either, and I, I just wanted to kind of take you on a, a brief little stint for, through a couple of American writers that I'm sure you're all familiar with. What happens is even writers hearing these worldviews accept them, uh, sort of take them into their own consciousness and produce literature that just conveys all of these ideas. For example, Walt Whitman. He, at the heart of most of his poetry, is a pantheistic ideology where man and nature are one. Thoreau, Emerson, there were a whole series of transcendentalists um, who did this. And Walt Whitman's greatest work, Song of Myself, is all about praising humanity and mankind and how wonderful I am. Um, Jack London, who uh, wrote The Call of the Wild, The Sea Wolf, a number of, of books that we think, oh, they're boy adventure stories, aren't they great? Well, at the heart of them is Darwinism and the survival of the fittest, um, the theme of atavism, how things regress, they go back to their primordial nature. Um, Ernest Hemingway, everybody always reveres him as this wonderful paragon of what America is all about. But if you really look at Hemingway, the heart of his 
of his text is existentialism. It's, he was part of this whole movement called the Lost Generation that basically didn't know where to go and what was life all about and, oh, life has no meaning and what meaning can we give it? Why am I existing? And he wound up committing suicide. Um, and then when we get into people who are more recent than that, somebody like Jack Kerouac, who is, you know, of the 60s and this beat generation, his texts are even worse. I mean, they're just filled with um, human vice and how wonderful that is and subverting Christianity with Buddhist ideology and, and it just gets worse and worse. I um, had to go, uh, rubbed off a little bit here, I had to go back to the mid-1800s to find a dominant American writer who had Christian values at the base of his um, literature. And that was John Greenleaf Whittier and someone like Harriet Beecher Stowe. And Whittier is a poet, but Stowe, even though at her, in her time was a very popular writer, she, she's not read very widely today. You know, so. And so, what, why am I saying all this? Where am I going with this? Well, what happens is, those of us who are Christian teachers in the public school, and there aren't enough of us, um, face a dilemma. How in the world can you discuss any kind of Christian ideology or values when you're dealing with valueless literature? And the only thing that you can do is to set up some sort of a comparative lit study you know, and do some sort of comparison and contrast. But even then, you're just dealing with the values that the kids bring to you. So unless there's a Christian student in your classroom, you can't mention anything because teachers cannot initiate anything in the form of a religious discussion. A student has to do initiating. Well, the other side of this is the students themselves. For the Christian student who is dealing with enough, um, there's at least that home base where they're learning something, but take the average child in my class who's not a Christian, and in fact, many students in my class have never even heard of, either haven't heard of Jesus Christ, or have no idea what he is all about, or who he really was. I had a student... Um, a couple of years ago, when I was teaching the Middle Ages and talking about the quest for the Holy Grail, um, who, when I said, well, and this is the, the uh, cup that Christ was supposed to have drank from at the Last Supper, said, well, who's that? And I said, well, he's the one who died on the cross. They put nails in his hand, and she was horrified. She couldn't believe. Oh, and she'd never heard of it before. I mean, unreal. It blew my mind, you know. I mean, there, and there's nothing that you can really do unless she said, tell me more. I can't say, well, let me tell you all about it. And so what happens to students like her is, first of all, you get a continuation of their writing, in their writing, rather, that reflects, first of all, the whole fruitless search of trying to find some kind of meaning in life. And... Well, let me go through this, and then I'll show you two poems that um, illustrate this. Secondly, the writing reflects valueless characters and plot lines and story ideas because they haven't got any idea as to the difference between right and wrong. You would be amazed. We take for granted that they know the difference between right and wrong. Let me tell you, there are children that do not 13-year-old children who really aren't clear on the fact that if you copy someone else's work, that that's cheating. Well, they're just helping. They're just, I'm just sharing. They have no concept. Um, and, and lastly, and sort of the scariest part of this, is that there is um, an intense anger and rebellion toward Christian excuse me, towards Christian values and beliefs because it's seen then as something very confining. I was telling Mr. Klopp of a class that I had, a graduate studies class on um, Sarah Orne Jewett, Willa Cather, and Edith Wharton. And I was in a class where a number of the women um, were lesbians um, because some of these women writers uh, were apparently supposed to have had that in their background. 
And one woman, one evening, got so angry as we were sort of talking about, you know, how Christian values were being sort of subverted in this one text. I'm so sick of Christians trying to, and she just went on this tirade for a couple of minutes. And you know, I'm sitting there thinking, okay, would now be a good time to say something? You know, it's unbelievable. It's really unbelievable, the anger at this. And I can show you instances of both of these things. These poems, I'm not going to bother to read them for you. I'll just put them up here and you can read them for yourself. Both the poems I'm going to show you were found in, just this year, were found in a student literary magazine put out by Carver, the um, Baltimore County Magnet School for the Arts. And a student of mine who wants to go there next year, um, who asked for recommendation all, came back from the evening and was so excited about it. Oh, she can't wait to go. And she said, oh, Miss Baxter, I thought you'd like to see this literary magazine. And of course, I was interested. And I went through and I was just stunned to find this, the answer key to the universe. And the proof, what he's setting out to prove is that life has a purpose, even a meaning, however slight. This is a high school student who can find no meaning in life. And his ultimate idea, if you've been able to read down that at all, the ultimate, the ultimate conclusion he comes to is you doom yourself to wasteful thought while the universe ticks on. You know, it's, it's like basic sort of existentialism here. I'm, I'm searching for the, the reason of my existence. And obviously there was no one there to tell him what the reason was. This other one is even more incredible. When I talked about the anger and rebellion of Christian ideas, this one's called The Cure. And it's obviously a boy who feels he's homosexual um, because at Carver, it's sort of the in thing to be gay. And so this is all about what well, he starts with this little blurb that is obviously taken from uh, it looks like a minister's prayer or a sermon or something and then there's just this sort of radical in your face excuse me preacher which face do you front when you talk for your god and just going on you can hear the attitude as you read it and i'll just leave it there so you can see it and just get the idea of this is this is a baltimore county teenager who obviously has some serious issues. Okay, um, I think we'll have, uh, I wish we had more time so that uh, Cindy could share more um, of what she sees, but I hope that this is, was a sobering example for some of you that what we're talking here is not theory. Don't kiss this off as we go through this. It's somewhat, I have it stilted in the way we phrase it because I'm trying to phrase things as clearly as I can for you. But what we're talking about is not theory. We're talking about how the universe runs and what happens when it malfunctions and how creatures rebel against the creator and what happens and the cause effects. And so what Cindy's basically done is, is show us right here. Here's an example. And this is not a professional philosopher writing this. But the thing you want to see about what Cindy showed us is that these are students who don't have to be professionals. They've already bought into the worldview. You see? And they bought into it not because they sat down. And this is, the, this is how ideas are translated. These students didn't buy into this by deliberately studying a lot of the great authors. Now, this student may have. But most of the time, it's caught. It's just caught in the air, in the environment. And that's why we as Christians can catch the viruses of paganism also. And so the way you protect your, your brains against this kind of stuff 
and your heart is to interconnect truth. Remember we said when we first started, one of the, one of the things that Christianity gave the world was systematic theology. Warren Miller has a class right now in the chapel on the great creed. And why were those church creeds, like the Apostles' Creed, created? It was to systematize thought and tie it together. And so you want to learn how one biblical idea is linked to another biblical idea. And so we are approaching things as we go through the Bible, event by event, so that these events become concrete illustrations and they become anchors in your head. We've dealt with creation and we've looked at, at how creation teaches us about God, man, and nature. And now we're looking at the fall. And last time we concentrated in the first uh, 50 page 51, 52, 53, and 54 on showing the difference historically between how paganism treats evil and how, how Christianity treats evil. And you remember how when we started, we said there were basically two views. And we said that the paganism starts out with this continuum, this impersonal continuum. Why that we mean just by way of review. That the creator-creature distinction isn't there. That all of reality is one great mystery. And inside that mystery is God, the gods, the goddesses, man, rocks, animals, plants, and everything else. So... Even God himself, in that case, is they may use the word G-O-D, but it's not the G-O-D we know from Scripture. And that God is a God who himself is surrounded by ultimate mystery. So, out of these two worldviews come different ideas of how evil started. And we said, really, if you look back at this, this answer, the pagan answer, it never gave an answer for origins. Because the universe always was there in some form or another. Now, the same thing happens here when we start looking at this diagram as to the origin of evil. Ultimately, there is no answer in that bottom picture. And that's what we tried to show last time by looking at an ancient pagan text and then you can come to modern Darwinianism which holds that the universe has always been in a state of struggle. There's always been suffering. There's always been misery. It's not blessed are the meek for they shall inherit the earth. It's blessed are the fittest for they shall survive. There's a totally different ethic involved in this picture. But good and evil, good and evil together are normal. And something within man is, is revolted by this. And this is why these poems of despair that Cindy brought up, and why the existentialists, and we'll get more into this in, in, a, in a few evenings, this is why these men are furious. One of the things that upsets them, of course, is that ultimately they are made in God's image, and there's that inside us called conscience. And the conscience testifies that something's wrong out there. It's not right that death and sorrow and suffering happen. But on this basis, they can't see any answer. So, on their basis, on their basis, evil always existed, and so there always was this awful thing. And if you really believe this, you've got a real problem. You talk about despair. This will send you into despair every time. What's so silly and unnecessarily trivial among educated people in our own generation is that they're wondering why do young people blow their brains out. Can't understand why teenagers blow their brains out. Well, it's probably because like the student that wrote this poem, they understand very well where ideas lead. And this isn't going to be solved by some government program. It's bigger than that. This is only solved by the revelation of the truth of the Word of God. So, on our basis, we want to be clear as Christians tonight that right at this very point of suffering, sorrow, evil, and death, we are miles and miles and miles apart from the world around us. The world around us has no answer to this. Our answer, they laugh. Our answer is, 
that there was a fall, a historic fall that occurred at a moment in time, and that there was a creation at a moment, and between those two points, we had existence without any evil, without any death, without any suffering. And that's our argument, that existence does not have to be evil existence. That's the test case. And of course, in the future, when God creates the new heavens and the new earth, it will again be a universe without evil and suffering and sorrow. It will have been excluded to an eternal junkyard called hell. But the point is that our answer is radically different. We as Christians collide with the world at a fundamental point, And this collision here at this point is as powerful, as total, and as intensive as the collision over creation. This is as equally powerful. So, we want to get into things tonight by noting this basic point where we have, as Christians, we, have, we are in a collision course with the world at this point. There's no compromise. It's one answer or it's the other. And there's tremendous and powerful ramifications from it. Like Cindy said, Ernest Hemingway finally blew his brains out with a shotgun. Now, why did Ernest Hemingway, did he, was he just depressed that morning? No, no. It goes deeper than that. He bought into his own worldview. That's what happened. Yeah, he might have been depressed that morning, but we all have mornings when we're depressed. The problem is that that day, he just went a few inches further on a trend that had developed all through his life. So we want to go to the notes, and on the bottom of page 55, you'll see that diagram of where I have a length of line under the letter A. And that A is what I've just shown you on the board, the difference between a, the creation, the point in time when there was a creation, and the point in time when evil began. I am not distinguishing at this point between the fall of Satan and the fall of Adam. That's disputed among Christians about a few adjustments, but it doesn't make any difference for the point I'm making now. The point I'm making now is that those points are separated Evil originated after creation was complete. And why do we know this? What was God's evaluation of the universe when it finished in Genesis? It was very good. And there was no evil present. Now, we have evil present. So, how did it get there? And so, that's why the Christian answer is, as I've underlined there at the bottom of page 55, responsible creature choices that originate evil. And that leads us into the problem of suffering and evil, which we are going to be on for a few weeks here. This is a heart of a fundamental aspect of our faith. This is where we are tested ourselves in our personal lives as Christians. This is where the unbeliever in his fury... You know, one of the things that Cindy mentioned, as she pointed up, did you notice how she mentioned there's this antagonism to Christianity? You know what's so peculiar about that? If Christianity is a myth, why should you be bothered by it? You see, it's the intensity of the hatred for Christianity that betrays the fact that deep down they know it's true. You're not upset by something that's insignificant, are you? I mean, if your dog barks at you, you're not insulted. It's just a dog. But if somebody personal comes up to you and insults you, now you're ticked off. What's the difference? Because you have been evaluated by another human being, and that hurts. And the hatred against Christianity is itself evidence that it's being believed. So, let's look at uh, the, the ramifications of this, and I think the best way of doing it is to go to um, Job. Go to Job chapter 38 again, because this is a classic passage in Scripture. And I want to mention something that is a, just a habit that you ought to get into if you aren't already. When you face a problem, such as this kind of a problem, the origin of evil, instead of going out and speculating on it, before you do that, just back off a moment and ask yourself, where in the Scripture does God deal with this particular problem? Let's watch how he does it. Make it pick up some tips. 
And, of course, the one book in the Scripture that's known, even by literate non-Christians, is the book of Job. That is the book that deals with suffering in the canon of Scripture. Now, here's the question that we want to ask. This is the question. It's on the second paragraph on the notes on page 56. So, I want to go through that paragraph with you. Um, uh, the first two paragraphs on page 56, and then we'll go to the book of Job for a moment. Uh, reading from the top on page 56, In the interval A, there was existence without evil, something denied in all forms of paganism. In other words, that's a non-pagan answer. This is not speculation, it is true history. So the question then doesn't directly concern creation itself. Rather, it concerns post-creation history. And here's the question. Was it right for God to have created creatures with responsible choice who, though created without evil, would certainly originate evil after some interval A? That's fundamentally the question. Next paragraph. God could have created creatures with responsible choice who would not ever originate evil. Angels had choice, but not all of them rebelled with Satan. Men had choice, and one, Jesus, he didn't rebel. Heaven and the new universe contain responsible creatures without any further origination of evil. And so we come to this last sentence of the second paragraph. If you put an asterisk out there, what I've tried to do is I've tried to funnel the question to make it as tight as I possibly can. We get as precise as we can. Because in the Bible, evil is limited under God. The question arises why he did not limit it down to the point of elimination. If God could eliminate evil, and he has, why did he zero it out? Why did he let it happen? That fundamentally has been going on throughout the chapters in the book of Job. Why this suffering? And it goes back to something that you've all experienced in your personal life, and it's just an aphorism of, of life. You can take, and, any, and human beings in general, we can take an awful lot of suffering and an awful lot of pain if we can just be convinced there's a purpose in it. But you take away that purpose and a relatively trivial level of pain will destroy somebody. During the Korean War, the communists had, had gotten propaganda schemes to a very high finesse level. And one of the startling things that came out of analysis of the Korean War was the state of what happened to some of the young men who were trapped in POW camps. And what they found was that the communist interrogators were so, so skilled at removing hope and meaning from those young boys that they didn't have to shoot them or kill them. Our guys would go off into a corner and in 36 hours they would be dead. Dead in despair. Not wounds. Not because they were tortured. But because they had been psychologically psyched out. Into total meaningless. They went over there. Rolled up on a little ball. And gave up. Didn't resist. Never thought of escape. Never thought of deception. But they gave up because they gave up all hope. There was no meaning left. And when there's no meaning left, you can be knocked off with very little pain and a very little push. So, the issue here is, it's a quest for where do we get meaning in the middle of sorrow, suffering, and evil. Very practically, when you look at a dying baby or you looked at a loved one who is dying of some horrible disease, that's what we're talking about. Does that have meaning or is that just an accident that's happening? So, what we want to then do is come to the scriptures and see how do the scriptures answer it. And when we do so, we're somewhat frustrated. And I want to deal with that little frustration tonight. In Job chapter 38, God intervenes. For 37 chapters, Job and his counselors have cried out for meaning in the middle of their suffering and sorrow. All kinds of answers have been suggested. Then God says this. Verse 2. Who is this that darkens counsel by words without knowledge? 
Now gird up your loins like a man, and I will ask you, and you instruct me. What kind of an answer is this? Let's think about it for a minute. This isn't addressed to a philosopher sitting in an ivory tower. This is addressed to a guy that lost his family. This is a guy who just went into bankruptcy. That's his situation. And you might say, well, God has some nerve coming to him and and hitting him like verse 2 and verse 3. Gird up your loins like a man, and I'll ask you and you instruct me. Where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? And it goes on. Who set its firmaments? Since you know. Do you sense a little sarcasm there? In other words, it seems that when we ask the question about the meaning in life, the meaning in suffering, we get this almost a hostile response by God. How do we explain this one? That he comes up and says, who do you think you are? And the questions go on. And they go on, verse 16. Have you entered the springs of the sea? Have you walked in the recesses of the deep? Have the gates of death been revealed to you? Or have you seen the gates of deep darkness? Have you understood the expanse of the earth? Go ahead and tell me if you know all this. Why does God do that to this poor, suffering guy? This this is not what you'd find on a get well card. Right? Right? And so it goes on, verse on chapter 39, just to give you more flavor of it. Do you know the time the mountain goats give birth? Do you observe the calving of the deer? Can you count the months they fulfill? Or do you know the time they give birth? Verse 5, who sent the wild donkey free? And it goes on and on and asks, if you look at those questions, God is asking them a question about every area of the universe. There's geological questions, biological questions, philosophical questions, literary questions, anthropological questions. Bam, 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 like a machine gun, one after another, striking this poor suffering guy. Why has God come on like this to this guy? Chapter 40. Verse 2. Another theme you wouldn't want to see on a get well card. Will a fault finder contend with the Almighty? Let him who reproves God answer it. Now we have something happen. At verse 3, you would expect Job to really get furious at this point. Now, I'm the one that's suffering here, and why are you coming on to me like that for? But notice what happens. Something is happening in the depths of Job's heart. Behold, I am insignificant. What can I reply to thee? I lay my hand on my mouth. Once I have spoken and I will not answer. Twice and I will add no more. And then it starts all over again. Verse 6. And God answered Job out of the storm. And by the way, you notice the, the theophany, the form in which God appears to Job? It's a great whirlwind. It's a storm. It's a picture of chaos in life. And here, the guy has suffered. He's lost his family. He's lost his finances. He's lost his health. And there's this awful storm and this voice booms out that he knows is God speaking to him. Gird up your loins like a man. I will ask you and you instruct me. And so, lesson two continues. Where's the mercy and the love in all this? We have to believe it's there. I'm just, I'm just leading you through the scripture, though. This is what happened to Job. And we can't kiss it off. There's not a sentimental answer being given here. God does not come out of the cloud and pat him on the head, which is our tendency to do in these kinds of situations. We want someone to comfort us. And this doesn't, frankly, sound like much comfort. Will you really annul my judgment? Will you condemn me that you may be justified? Or do you have an arm like God? And can you thunder with a voice like His? Adorn yourself with eminence and dignity. Clothe yourself with honor and majesty. Pour out the outflowings of your anger. And look on everyone who is proud and make him low. And it goes on and on and on and on. And so we go through chapter 40, chapter 41, until we get to chapter 42. 
And so God lightens up a little bit. And then Job answers in chapter 42. And he said, I know that thou canst do all things, that no purpose of thine... I want you to watch that because there's an answer in here and we want to play with it a little bit tonight until we pull it out of the text. The answer is right here. The only answer we're going to get. And it doesn't, at first glance, look at all like it's a comforting answer. I know that thou canst do all things, and that no purpose of thine can be thwarted. Who is this that hides counsel without knowledge? Therefore I have declared that which I did not understand, things too wonderful for me which I did not know. Hear now, and I will speak. I will ask thee, and you instruct me. I have heard of thee by the hearing of the ear, but now my eye sees you, and I have, therefore I retract and I repent in dust and ashes. Now let's think about what happened in this encounter. This is a strange encounter. It's not something you'd forecast of a perfect counselor. What is going on here between Job and God? Before we push on further here, Let's turn over to a very similar passage in Romans chapter 9. Paul was grieved when he wrote chapter 9 of Romans. As one scholar said, and all the scholars of the world have been grieving ever since he wrote the chapter. But he was a very upset man when he wrote chapter 9. And he tells you how deeply he's upset in verse 2. Paul was a Jew. And he had a natural bond and love racially with his fellow Jews. And he said, I have great sorrow and unceasing grief in my heart. For I wish that I would go to hell... That's the force of what he's saying here. I wish that I myself were cursed, separated from Christ for the sake of my racial brethren, my kinsmen according to the flesh. So he's in agony to the point where he actually says, I wish I were in hell than see what I'm seeing in my brethren. And he goes on to describe why this has happened. And the answer that he had come up with, somewhat in the same harsh tradition of the book of Job, he says, verse 14, What shall we say then? There is no injustice with God, is there? May it never be. Verse 15, For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy, I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion, so it does not depend on the man who wills, the man who runs, but on God who has mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this purpose I raised you up to demonstrate my power in you that my name might be proclaimed throughout all the earth. So then he has mercy on whom he desires and he hardens whom he desires. And you will say to me, why does he then find fault? For who resists his will? And then this strange answer again. It is an exact mirror of the conversation between God and Job. Verse 20. O man who answers back to God, the thing molded will not say to the molder, why did you make me thus, will it? Or does the potter have a right over the clay to make from one lump and so forth and so on? And in verse 22, God willing to demonstrate his wrath and make his power known endured with much patience the vessels which... Uh, uh, vessels of wrath prepared for destruction, that he may make known the riches of his Christ, uh, Christ and so forth. Now, of course, in verse 22 and 23, you have a suggested answer, basically the glory of God. But the question we want to work through here and, and, and realize that the scripture does say this very bluntly, is that God does not see fit to give us a complete answer. What he's got going. And we have to deal with that as Christians. Why does God not now give us a complete answer? Well, let's go back and look at something we learned weeks ago. Here's God. Here's man. And you remember we were careful to say God's attributes have analogs with man. And we said that over here God has sovereignty. And God has holiness. And God has love. And God has omniscience. And over here, answering to those, man has choice, 
Man has conscience, man has love, and man has knowledge. God has an answer. Not to say this says it's an irrational joke. God has a rational and just answer for what he does. The problem isn't that the answer doesn't exist. The problem, folks, is where it exists. It's the location of the answer. Unfortunately for us, the whole answer isn't located down in the creation. It's located up here in God Himself, and He has pieces, and the pieces of this answer come down in the form of revelation here and there about His character. But the whole answer hasn't come yet. I want you to notice two things about this that are very important. That set the Bible over against all other positions. One is that there is an answer after all. Now, Cindy, when she was talking, mentioned the existentialist tradition. In the existentialist tradition, there aren't any answers. What has happened there is by blotting man out of the equation, the existentialists really have taught us something. They are good thinkers. The existentialists have realized that if man is all that there is, and man is limited in his capacities, he can never generate universals. And therefore, there is no universal meaning. And there is no ultimate meaning. This is why, in a very famous book he wrote, Walter Kaufmann, famous atheist professor at Princeton, wrote, he said that, when confronted with the issue of suffering, he said, well, we have no real answer for suffering. So, the best we can do is make up an answer for the moment that seems good. Well, a pistol in the mouth might seem good. Drugs might seem good. So the existentialists have led up to this. This is what we get in literature classes. That's what Cindy's talking about. But the, the point is, you don't just react against it and say, ooh, how bad that is. You understand what's going on. Look at the game that's being played out. It makes sense, doesn't it? If this is all there is, and there is no other answer, doesn't that imply a certain behavioral response? If you really believe that, wouldn't you act a certain way? Of course you would. So now you understand that these people aren't being... You say, well, gee, I, I can't believe somebody would do that. Well, if they think this way, of course they can do that. It goes back to the worldview. And that's what Cindy said. The writers are articulating a worldview, and that's the end result of the worldview. Now, in our position, in the scriptural position, we say there's an answer. See, the problem the existentialists had, years ago it was thought, before they came along, that man could generate the answer. That's why you had the struggle in the early philosophers to generate the answer. It was why one guy came on and said, I have the answer. And then the next guy, 50 years later, would write a book and knock his book and say, no, I got the answer. Until finally you come to the 19th and 20th centuries, nobody has the answer. And in that, we've progressed. Paganism has progressed because it's realized that a finite man can't generate the answer because finite man can't generate universals. But in the Bible... We have a person who is infinite, who has universals. So now the point is that there is an answer, but the answer is in his mind and in his heart. And we will learn of the answer only on his terms. If he chooses to share the answer, we learn it. And if he does not choose, we don't know it. Now, let's see two biblical examples that give you just a crack. The door opens just a crack so you can kind of peek through into the heart of God. And one of those scriptures I note in the notes is John chapter 11. So if you turn to the Gospel of John a moment. In John, verse 30, chapter 11, verse 30. 
It's a little thing. To make sense of this passage, though, of course, we have to presuppose Jesus is who He is. Jesus is who He claimed to be. That is God incarnate. So what we now have is God Himself walking the face of this planet and He sees the death of a friend. Jesus had not yet come into the village. He was still in the place where Martha met Him. The Jews then, because the brother died, counseling, consoling her when they saw Mary rose up quickly. They followed her. Suppose she's going to the tomb to weep. Mary came to where Jesus was. She saw him. She fell at his feet. And she said, Lord, if you'd been here, my mother, brother wouldn't have died. And Jesus saw her weeping. Now watch this response. Now this is the same God who comes on so heavy to Job. This is the same God who's the potter who says, I can make the pot any way I want. But watch this. When Jesus therefore saw her weeping and the Jews who came with her, he was deeply moved in his spirit and was troubled. And then, in verse 35, Jesus weeps. Shortest sentence in the New Testament. Is this the behavior you would expect of a cruel God? See what I mean? The door cracks a little bit. And you begin to see that however we answer this issue of evil, it is not some omnipotent God who has no feeling, who isn't at all affected, who's totally remote from it all. He obviously isn't. He's deeply moved. This is the God of the universe who created all things, who's weeping. So that shows something. And we have another little crack in the door, Romans chapter 3. So let's see if you'll turn there for just a moment. Verse 25 and verse 26. Romans chapter 3. The point that is being made here is that in the Old Testament, they had a special suffering problem. Here's the Old Testament Jewish and we'll call it suffering problem. They had a very special suffering problem. Or a very special, I won't say suffering problem so much as a contradiction, an apparent contradiction in God. On the one hand, in the Old Testament, you have the prophets saying that God is holy. And holiness condemns sin and judges it. On the other hand, in the Old Testament, God is merciful. And he promises mercy and grace. But in the Old Testament, there's no resolution of those two themes. Nowhere do they come together. And if you were a skeptic, like the 20th century skeptics, you could have argued back in the Old Testament era, oh, well, God can never be merciful. He can never be just. If he's merciful and just, he destroys his holiness. And if he's holy, and he's got to destroy that which sins... He can't be merciful. Now, the Bible says that, but I don't understand it. He's never given us the answer. See? This is a contradiction that Old Testament saints had to live with century after century after century. But now we come to the cross of Jesus Christ, and Paul, in chapter 3, verses 25 to 26, suddenly he says he resolves the dilemma. God displayed Christ publicly as a propitiation in His blood through faith. This was to demonstrate His righteousness, because in the forbearance of God, He passed over the sins previously committed. See, there's the two problems in the Old Testament. For the demonstration, I say, of His righteousness at the present time, that He might, and here's the key, this is the key sentence, that He might be just, that is, He might be holy. And at the same time, the one who is merciful, the justifier of him who has faith in Jesus. Now, let's look at what ha what's happening here. Here we have a case in point that from the time of Moses in 1400 B.C. down to the time of Jesus, 14 centuries, men struggled with this apparent contradiction in God. And suddenly at the cross of Christ, it was all resolved. In three short hours, it was resolved. Now, if it was resolved so dramatically like this, was it resolved? Let's, let's take ourselves back in a time machine just for a minute. Imagine yourself dwelling in Israel in 1000 B.C. Would you ever have dreamed that this would be the solution to the dilemma? I doubt it. 
we would have had to have by faith accepted one day God would resolve it. But we wouldn't have an idea of how he was going to resolve it. But the important thing for tonight is, did the cross resolve it, in fact? And isn't this verse saying that God has taken both, he is just, and he is merciful. And he can be both at the same time. And how he can be both at the same time is through this amazing work of Jesus Christ on the cross. Utterly unforeseen in its totality in the Old Testament. Forecast in pieces and glimpses, yes. But that's because, and we see a lot more in the Old Testament because we're, you know, Monday morning quarterbacks, games all over, and, you know, well, they should have seen that. Well, yeah, we didn't live then, so don't say they, they should have seen that. Well, the, here's, here's the conclusion. If God could do this to this problem in the Old Testament, and come out with the fact that he did, after all, have an answer. Men just didn't see it yet. Is it not valid to conclude that one day there will be revealed a total answer? And it will deeply move us as we are moved by watching what he did in the cross of Christ. A deeply and profoundly moving thing that causes us to worship him. So let's return to where we started tonight with Job. Why is the harsh answer there? Why does God come on so heavy to Job like that? Well, if the real answer is in God, what do we have to do down here in order to appropriate that answer when we don't know the answer? The only way we can maintain our sanity in the middle of suffering is to, on the basis of what God has so far revealed of himself and his character, to trust him that he is trustable to have an ultimate answer for every detail, every suffering, and every tear. We don't know yet. In fact, we may spend all eternity learning that because it may be such a convolved, complicated answer that will unfold and unfold and unfold. And as it unfolds each time, a peon of praise will raise to his name. Now, if you think, consider this not to be an answer, then I challenge you, if you don't accept this answer, I challenge you to come up with any answer. If you don't accept the Bible answer, you don't have any answer. You not only don't have a bad one, you don't have any. Because you don't have any answer. You don't have a basis for an answer. So you either go along with what the Scriptures say and come like Job did finally. And I believe this is why God was so hard, apparently harsh. God is not that kind of a cruel God. God had a point in coming to Job heavy like that. And that was to make the creator creature clear in his mind. Remember the response Job said? I don't know what I'm talking about. It's almost like we have this burning question. We've written it down. We've prayed about it so much. And boy, when I get in front of God, I'm going to ask him this. And it's like you walk in and suddenly you do see God, like Job did. And suddenly you forget the question. Because of what you see. When Job saw God for who God was, the question kind of went away. Not to deny that there is an answer. But what happened in Job's experience and what happened in Paul's experience, they were overtaken by the fact that they could look God in the face and see Him for who He is. And the question sort of dissolved. The hand that was saying, I want an answer. Answer me. The hand just kind of... And that's what you get in Job chapter 40 and 42. So, the Christian answer to the issue of suffering is that God has the answer. And we don't know all of its parts. And the only way we deal with that kind of a thing is we trust Him. We don't try a program of gimmicks. We don't have works. We don't deal with some sort of therapy. We trust Him. And in order to trust Him, we have to come to know Him. And the only place we come to know Him is through His revelation, in His Word and in our lives. And that's the issue. That's always the issue.
we do not have all the answers. So don't walk out as a Christian claiming we've got all the answers. God has all the answers. And we have Him. Father, thank You for who You are. And we thank You for this testimony of history and for showing Yourself to be our God, a God that is reliable, that is trustable, that we must bow our knee to as the Creator. And we must assume the position of creatures. And when we do that, we see in these passages that we can live and we can survive and we can triumph over the sorrows and heartaches in our lives. Thank you as your Holy Spirit reveals these things to us and makes them real in Christ's name. Amen. Okay, next week we'll work into the effect of the fall now on man. Not a very pretty sight, but it's an exercise in despair, controlled despair, uh, as we look at the very morbid relic that we are compared to what we could have been had we not fallen in Adam.